Hi guys, I have a fantastic interview for you today. I am with Darren Vo. Yes, I know the surname is very similar to mine, isn't it? Yes. Um, he is the president of Icomia and also my husband of 31 years. So um, it's been interesting to interview him in this uh, in this really interesting um, information from Icomia about the uh, the future of decarbonisation of the recreational boating industry. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, and welcome to the Boat Princess podcast. My name is Nikki Vo, and I'm your host. I am a boat owner, a marina owner, a director on the Marina Industries Association and a huge advocate for boating. In this series, I'm sharing the stories from every nook of the boating industry with the intention of encouraging more women to join me and for more women to get behind the helm too. I want to share the experience and opportunities of boating, of the boating industry, and I want you to join me as I bring the conversations and answer all the questions you've had. Boating is not just for the glamorous and rich and famous. It's full of beautiful and interesting people making the most of our natural environment and getting out there, enjoying the waterways. So let's set off the lines, take over the helm and escape to the world of boating. So welcome, Darren Foe, president of Icomia. Tell me, what is Icomia? Oh, well, it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, so Icomia stands for uh, the International Council of Marine Industry Associations. So we're the global peak body uh, for the recreational marine industry. And our members are basically the leading trade associations for the recreational marine industry around the world. So we have 40 members made up of sort of country representatives and, and sustaining members, which are large multinational corporations. Um, but we are effectively the voice of the recreational marine industry. So, for example, for Australian listeners, it's the MIA and the BIA are members? Yeah. So you look at that and you go, so the Boating Industry Association, Marine Industries Association and Amex are the members of ICOMIA. Okay. And so ICOMIA is effectively, for want of a better term, the global um, equivalent to those associations. So those associations are representing their members in their countries and then ICOMIA is over the top of those associations. Yeah, so we deal with fundamentally all the international issues. So as an example, uh, there's 147 ISO standards that affect the recreational marine industry. So ICOMIA represents the global industry on those. But one of the main things we do is actually bring all of our members together to enable them to collaborate um, so that we can share our intellectual property from around the world, share our challenges and work together to actually take our industry forward. And I think that's one of our main goals is to provide a platform for people to collaborate. And I've seen that in action at World Mariners Conference myself, and it's it's really wonderful to see so many of them, the members of ICOMIA come together to discuss the issues, the problems, the things that are coming in the future and 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 all helping each other. It's, it's a really great, great thing to see in action. I think it's a really interesting one. When we have our... Um, 
our annual Congress and uh, our annual general meeting, we usually put out the flags of the countries that sit around the table. And and it's a great reflection of the way that people from different cultures um, with different languages as their first language, but all come together you know, with a shared passion for recreational boating and actually seeing the industry prosper and, and really, I guess, um, focusing on actually getting more people uh, to share and enjoy the benefits that recreational boating has to offer. And I think that's the, one of the driving forces behind our industry is, is bringing people together so that we can collectively uh, get more people into boating. So I, I know um, as an Australian, you know, that we, we look to the MIA, the BIA and Amex, and we know they do a whole bunch of different things, but there's a lot of things going on there sometimes that we don't necessarily know about as an industry. If they're not doing their job, then our job as an industry gets harder. So I'm guessing it's the same scenario for Icomia. If you're not doing what Icomia does, it gets harder for the associations. Yeah, well, it's it's actually the dichotomy that all trade associations suffer, that if they do their job really well, if their platform of government advocacy is excellent, if they work well in all of the international and local standards, if they've built great collaborations and sharing of information, then it's members, in our case for Icomia, our trade associations, but the trade association's own members, if the members aren't, prob- aren't experiencing problems, then in some respects they go, well, I don't really know what our association does because we don't seem to have any issues that they need to address. And it's a, it's a really interesting one because an association that doesn't do its job well and the industry is faced with enormous amounts of problems has you know, great engagement with its members because it needs to solve its members' problems. So it's a, it's a great challenge for all. And it's not just our industry, it's all industries. And I guess part of it is that we need to have really good communication so our members do understand all the work that we're doing for them, uh, you know, behind the scenes in a lot of respects. And, you know, because there's an extraordinary amount of work that goes on. And I guess even just the projects that we do and all those sorts of things are so important for our industry because we're not just looking for today, we're looking to the future. And that's part of our remit is to ensure that we set our industry up for a prosperous future. And that's what we're here to talk about today, the future, because... The boating industry has a big challenge ahead with um, the environmental impact that we have on the world. The, the, the environment that we enjoy, the ocean, is incredibly important to our lifestyle. So we need to make sure that we are doing things to, to take care of that. So um, I know Icomia has um, taken the lead, if you like, and and said, okay, we need to be careful that we as an industry um, take the lead on this and, and find out what we need to do. So um, you've conducted a massive, massive study, haven't you? Tell me about that. Yeah, so I, I guess the first thing that's important is that that um, Icomia and our trade associations around the world, uh, our priority in relation to environmental sustainability is not new. It's something that we've literally been working on for decades and it's predicated on the basis that, that our industry our industry success is actually based on, on being able to operate within a pristine environment. So whether our industrial processes have impact on the environment or whether our recreational boaters have an impact on the environment, it's all about us looking at it and saying, what do we do um, to improve that sustainability now? Um, a very hot topic at the moment, of course, is decarbonisation. In fact, as we speak today in early December, COP28 is going on in Dubai. Um, and in that context, 
Um, you know, the, it, it's all coming back to the commitments that were made under the Paris Agreement by 196 countries where they all came together and signed up to the pledge that, that um, greenhouse gas emissions would peak in 2025 and that we're all committing to a reduction by 43% uh, by 2030. Now, that's a big yeah. ask. It's it's a massive ask. And mm. and 2030 is like next week because, mm. you know, we're just about to roll over into 2024 and in in things of that scale. Now, the harsh reality is right now, today, we're not on target. And, in fact, the, what's really important about that to understand is that the reduction of 43%, the scientists have indicated that the, the reasoning behind that is that that should be able to keep global warming to one and a half degrees. And one and a half degrees is seen as the threshold for acceptability, recognising there'll still be consequences of that, but almost like that's the threshold at which we can manage it. We're not there. And I think the latest figures that I saw is that they're predicting 1.8 and there's great uncertainty about what that means. So the reality of it is um, if we're not there and governments are committing to it, well, the only thing that governments and regulators and policymakers have at their disposal is to impose restrictions on on the community or on industry to force them to do it. And so that's the platform upon which uh, Icomia has embarked on this comprehensive decarbonisation study. So that I guess policymakers can make an informed decision as opposed to a, oh, let's just do this and that might work. (laughs) Well, Well, and you're absolutely right because one of the biggest issues is People make decisions based on the information available to them. And the reality is in this space, surprisingly, is there's a significant information void. And so we've taken the initiative um, to do, and this project's been going on for at least two years, um, but to actually undertake the most comprehensive um, decarbonisation study, uh, certainly of the recreational marine industry, but in, in a lot of respects, I think more comprehensive than are done in a lot of industries, because um, this framework is a full life cycle assessment. So that means that we're looking at effectively the cradle to grave. So in terms of the products that we produce right from their inception, the materials from where they come from, um, the mines, the wells and all those sorts of things, right through its entire manufacturing phase, right through its operating phase, right up until its end of life processes, so that's the sort of term cradle to grave. And I guess another one we use is well to wake. In other words, in terms of the manufacturing phase is looking at and go, you know, the materials and energies, for instance, right out of the well, right out of the ground, right out of the source that it comes from to the point that the propulsion delivers wake and moves the boat forward. So our focus is on the propulsion system more so than the vessels themselves, but it's looking at a whole range of different propulsion systems and comparing them right down in terms of the embodied carbon in all aspects of, of the use of the craft through its entire life. Wow, that's a big study with a lot of information in it. And the boating industry is a very complex one that policymakers don't necessarily know a great deal about. So it's, it is actually really important for, you know, an association like yourselves to actually put that information forward so that, that they can understand it a little bit more because, Boating is is boating. It's very unique, isn't it? Yeah, and I think um, there's a couple of aspects to it. One is that we need to undertake this report in a way that policymakers could rely on it, that the data integrity was absolutely, um, you know, it had the full credibility. And I guess part of that is that, you know, we're a trade association, so therefore 
uh, and it's been funded by ICOMIA. So the process was to say, how do we create the independence of the report so the research can be considered to have you know, absolute credibility? And, and in doing so, I guess we engaged Ricardo, who are an international consultant in 20 countries, you know, 3,000 odd employees around the world. But importantly, they're recognised as the global leader in undertaking these type of studies, LCA analysis. They do it across a whole range of different industries as well, whether it's defence or aeronautics or transport or water or finance and, and all of those sorts of elements. But more importantly, they are seen um, by governments and policymakers as a credible group who actually understand those particular aspects. And so to me, I think that that was such an important part. But even beyond that, we had it peer-reviewed by three independent parties, two of them doing the technical review and the third one as a devil's advocate review, in other words, to look at all the all the conclusions that were put forward and to challenge them. And I think we're very happy. It's a 558-page report. It's a wow. very data-heavy um, exercise, but the reality of it is that it, it is an absolute comprehensive um, study that people can take, you know, the data from, understand it, look at it, and then, you know, more importantly and most importantly, industry and policymakers alike can start to make informed decisions about what to do between now uh, and the future because we the study is basically looking to the future to 2035. You know, the data sets that are built into it are looking to what projections there are to 2035. So it's not it's not a hindsight review. It's a it's a projection because we're trying to create a pathway to decarbonise the recreational marine industry, and this is it. It's great. So, in other words, what you're saying there is that this hasn't been funded by some oil producer, or you know, there are some cynics that are going to be listening to this, going to be saying, "Ah, oh, yeah, this study's been produced by the boating industry." But you know, can can we address those cynics that this is a true study that's been produced for the entire industry and the consumer, not funded by you know, I don't know, an engine manufacturer or something? So, you know? so I think I think the key thing here is that sure, it's funded by Acomia, and Acomia is the representative of the recreational marine industry, but. We recognise that that in doing so, um, we've needed to engage Ricardo and outline the things that I said before about doing, you know, having it done independently, uh, prepared, having it peer reviewed, having it analysed, so that it does stand alone. And I think it is a really key issue. And I think that that's the important thing. It's not a study that we've we've done ourselves. Yep. It's the Ricardo study, yeah. and they've been engaged to actually perform it. And I think that's. That's as strong as it can be in terms of addressing that issue. Yeah, because it's it's not in in the boating industry's interest. They've done it as a completely independent study, as as an engaged and very well recognised um, party in doing that. They have to maintain their reputation very strongly, don't they? So that's really really important for those uh, that, that that may you know be a little bit judgmental yeah. of yeah. that process. Yeah. Now, um, what about other areas of LCA decarbonisation? Well, let's, well, let's talk about the actual decarbonisation study at this point first. Um, what in that study um, has been done to find the results? What, what, what did they put together? Yeah, so I think, so I guess the first thing is what's the scope? Yeah. Yeah, so the, the scope of it was, 
orientated towards trying to identify the most representative set of recreational craft and the most representative set of propulsion alternatives. Now, I think the important thing is to start with is that that this is about recreational craft. It's and, and essentially vessels under 24 metres. Okay, so super yachts are out of the picture. Yeah, so so super yachts have got a completely different usage profile to typical recreational craft. And I think there there is the potential for that to be a logical extension of this report as a phase two, but this report specifically addresses vessels under 24 metres. And in fact, the largest vessel that was considered in the study was 19 metres. So okay. um, the way that we did it was we had nine different craft types. So if we look at what those craft types were, we had things like an inflatable boat, a runaway, a, a, a um, runaround boat, a runabout, a fishing boat, a PWC, a pontoon boat, displacement motor boat, an inland waterways vessel, a high performance motor yacht and a sailing yacht. Okay. So, And the reason those particular craft were selected is that they're representative of you know, the vast majority of vessels that are currently sold in the marketplace. Uh, but more importantly, in some respects, because of scale, they're also very reflective of the existing fleet. Okay. And I think that that's what needs to be taken into account. Even though this particular study is talking about new vessels, we need to be cognizant of the scale of the existing fleet, which we can then sort of talk about when the, when we look at the results, what that actually means in that regard. So then when we take those nine vessel types, we've then got five different um, alternatives for propulsion. One is the baseline, and that is fossil fuel, um, fossil fuels used in ICEs, internal combustion engines. Um, we then have uh, sustainable, what's called drop-in fuels. So they are um, fuels that are made from waste feedstocks, cooking oils, various other things. So they're made from non-fossil fuels, but they are effectively can be put into the existing engines as they exist. So that's why they're called dropping because you can literally put them in the tank? You can just put them in. Okay. Um, The other one then is to look at hybrid electric electric using sustainable fuels on the hybrid ICE stage, full battery electric, and then we've looked at hydrogen, but hydrogen used in two ways in an ICE, internal combustion engine for um, for propulsion or in a fuel cell. So that gives us the, the broader spread. Now, there are different types of fuels and alternatives, particularly in the dropping fuel sense with various methanols and, and ammonias and things like that. But the reality is in, in doing the evaluation, this is, this is a really good um, representative set. And so if you look at that, we've got five different types of fuel and propulsion systems, and then we've got nine different craft types. So we've done full cradle-to-grave LCA analysis of 45 different scenarios. And I think it's important to understand that we're talking about looking at where the materials come from for every component in the propulsion system, what the transport implications are where they come from, what the manufacturing processes are, and using all the best data sets to basically assemble that to work out the full embodied carbon in the entire process. And I think that's so important because um, there's so many parts, particularly the low operating utilisation of recreational craft that has a big, big impact on the way we consider it. Okay, so three things I need to question out all, all of that. One is we need to explain to our listeners when we're talking about propulsion systems what yep. we're talking about. Yep. We're okay. talking about. So the first thing is that it's about what we're looking at is the engines. So we're looking at the fuel, the where the energy comes from. So that's either going to be a fuel or it's going to be electricity. And then we're looking at the engines, which are either going to be internal combustion engines or electric motors. 
And so we're talking about the energy and system that converts that energy into forward motion of a boat. Cool. And then LCA stands for? Life cycle assessment. So we're calculating the embodied carbon in every component of the life cycle of a particular craft type or propulsion system. Okay. And then there was a third and I, it's, I've completely it'll, forgotten it. It'll, it'll come back. Maybe it's the maybe it's the low operating utilization of boats because it's probably this yes, is probably a really that's, that was it well done <laughs> that was my third yes, point that was it so yeah. um and and this is a really interesting one I think firstly boats have much more in common with aeroplanes than they do with cars okay and the reason being is that boats are all about thrust and so it takes 10 times the amount of energy to move a boat through the water than it does a car over land. Okay. And if you think about it, what most cars are doing most of the time is driving. What most boats are doing most of the time is sitting around. True. And so one of the things that's really important, and I think this, this comes as a surprise to people when you say it, but when they think about it, it makes sense, is that the average engine hours for a recreational vessel is less than 50 hours per year. And I think that the reason that that's um, so important is that if you've got a lot of carbon embodied in the manufacturing process of a craft and you're going to save carbon by a particular propulsion system, it's really difficult to offset increased levels of carbon because the operating hours are so small. Mm. Um, and I think that, that as a result, that's a really important part of it. And I think... Part of the issue, if you look at a policymaker point of view, is about perception. And that perception is a result of the way that we as an industry represent our products. So if you look in a magazine and you say there's a picture of a boat or you see the imagery or see things, often you're looking at those boats and they're going very fast. They're going very fast. And they're fast. under power and they're doing all of those sorts of things. So the perception to, is that's what boating is. To make them look exciting. But the yes. reality is most people get on their boat, they might drive it at slow speed for an hour and either pick up a mooring, drop an anchor, do something, and either or drift, or say they're going to go fishing, they're going to go swimming, they're going to do a whole range of other things. And so as a consequence, for a day out on a boat, the engine would be lucky to run for two hours. And if you do that 20, 25 times a year, there's your 50 hours. And I think the important thing is that data set that's, that, um, that shows that those engine hours, that comes from the engine manufacturers, because these days, like everything, all the servicing is all electronic. So, so they've got these incredible data sets. But these are data sets recognised like by people like the EPA in the US. Okay, you know, these are these are third party accredited sort of data sets that everyone sort of looks at and goes, no, no, that that's the right set, and it's reflective of the vast majority of use. So sure, there's outliers. There's some people that might use their boats all the time and go, well, I use my boat 200 years, hours a year. Great. Yep. Um, but that's not where the majority not, of it is. So yeah. if we come back to this point, we are trying to work out how to decarbonise the recreational marine industry so our industry can meet the Paris Agreement. To do that, we need to move the bulk of the industry in a particular direction. So we're using data sets that reflect the bulk of the industry. And I think those engine hours are such an important part of it. Um, and I guess there's one more point yeah. I'd like to make, which I think is really <laughs> important, is that we should be very proud as an industry about um, the longevity of our products. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, durability is a key component of sustainability. And although we aren't addressing the materials, we do, we actually take into account the LCA, the embodied carbon of actually building each of these craft. But for the propulsion systems, it's fundamentally the same. Yeah. 
So um, it's sort of a, a standard type thing. It's the propulsion systems that change. But these craft are incredibly durable and they last for incredible amounts of time. So if you look at it and say, for instance, a high-performance motor yacht has a life of 50 years. So well, you, yeah, it could be even more. We don't really know yet, No, do this we? is saying what we're, yeah. again, we're using the means yeah, of yeah. basically saying this is what the reasonable expectation is. Like, you know, the... It, the, probably the, the the shortest lifespan of some of them might be the inflatable tenders and things like that, sure. but that's still ten years. Yeah, you know, but it but on on average, boats last a lot longer than cars, as an example, and so um, it's an important part because that durability and the embodied carbon in that in that craft, particularly say the existing fleet, there's enormous value in the carbon that's already spent in building the existing fleet. So we need to find ways to actually be able to you know, stretch that out for as long as possible because when you build a new craft, you know, half, you know, for a lot of craft, half the embodied carbon for the whole life of the craft is in the manufacturing phase. Yeah, okay. You know, in a car it's about 10 to 15%. Yeah. But for a boat it's about half. And so depending on which boat it is, of course, but it gives you a sense as to the differences between the two. That's a really interesting stat. And and I guess the beauty of boats and what we see happen with boats as opposed to cars is they get completely refurbished, updated, all those sorts of things during that 50 years, don't they? Whereas um, a car, you might say, okay, it's it's feeling really dated and really the, the seats are worn out and the, and the stereo is not what it used to be and all those sorts of things car gets changed to new car but with boats we have that beautiful option of because of all the trades available and the and the wonderful companies that do different things i mean SeaTac are a perfect example of this you can turn an old boat into a completely new one um but often the engines and the hull which is where most of the carbon was spent in its build are still left in place aren't they absolutely and i think that's such an it's a key element of it. I think, and that's one of the challenge with emerging technologies, for instance, because some of those emerging technologies don't have lives that match the length of the craft. Battery technology, for instance, is a classic example that that really um, the current technologies, emerging technologies, are indicating that the life is around you know ten, maybe fifteen years at a push, but they start to uh, reduce performance. So. If you've got to then start replacing those through the course and the life of a boat, then it has it has carbon consequences. And so yeah. all of those types of things, when you do a full LCA analysis, cradle to grave, you have to take into account all of that, that, that those elements. You have to look at the life of each of the materials and allow for replacement of the during the life of the craft as well. So And that that is a real challenge with the current technology of batteries, isn't it? Yeah. Because they do have a limited life. Um, whereas the boats have a very long life. Yep. So we, we, I guess we do really need to take that into account, don't we? Yep. Um, I've been talking to New Zealanders and they've told me that uh, electric cars are being abandoned because their um, battery cost is so much greater than the value of the car and obviously the impact of that is not good at all. So... So before we continue that amazing interview with our current guest, a little interlude from us here at The Boat Princess. If you'd like to be a guest on The Boat Princess, simply send us an expression of interest to our email at info at theboatprincess.com or send us a DM on Instagram 
We are The Boat Princess on Instagram. And uh, we'll send you our media kit and details as to how we work. Um, the, the podcast is incredibly popular worldwide. And there is nothing like getting 45 minutes or so of somebody's ears entirely dedicated to what you're trying to achieve or perhaps what your company is trying to achieve. So we look forward to hearing from you. You've looked at um, the LCA. Is there any other areas of decarbonisation you've looked at on this stu- in this study? Um, so I guess one of the things when we've evaluated uh, all of the different propulsion types is that we've then got to look and to say, can you actually do a proper, um, you know, apples for apples comparison using that sort of colloquialism, but you, can you actually do a, a full comparison? One of the challenges is you can't. Um, and the reason being is just as an example, the difference between the energy density of um, a battery or the energy density of compressed hydrogen is substantially less than the energy density of either of liquid fuels. Now, whether that's a fossil fuel or whether it's a sustainable fuel, there's such a dramatic difference between the two. To give just as an example in, in round terms, um, a lithium-ion battery uh, has one thirtieth of the energy density, you know, of diesel. Wow. Okay. And so, so in, in now, electric propulsion is more efficient in taking stored energy in a battery and converting it into forward propulsion by, you know, maybe three hundred percent. But you still need ten to eleven times if you want to get the same range and performance. You'd need ten to eleven times the volume of volume of liquid fuel that you're storing on your boat in batteries. Oh, which with boats you can't do it. Big so, issue. So, so sinking type stuff. Yeah. So so I think that one of the things, and this is one of the the exercises that Ricardo had to go through, is that they then needed to evaluate um, what is what is a sensible comparison. And in essence, you know, because you can't, you know, the, the boat has to have a functional area, it has to have all of these type of things. So on the smaller craft, we ended up with um, range and performance of about 20% of the fossil fuel equivalent. On the high-performance motor yacht, it was only 10%. Now, is that consumer acceptable? Is that all of those things? That's not really dealt with specifically within the report, but it's it's just important for everyone to understand. So even when we get to the results, um, we're not comparing an apples-for-apples apples comparison. We're comparing what's considered to be the practical implementation of current technologies and projected performance of those technologies over the next 10-year period. And so um, that that is, you know, so when you're really trying to look at how to decarbonize things, you can't just, you can't use theory. You've got to be practical and say, well, you know, maybe, you know, the decision is that if you had to go down that pathway, then, then the usage profile, uh, the consumer expectation needs to be managed to meet the limitations. Um, and the other part that we looked at was to go, um, you can't, you know, this is recreational boating. It's a discretional activity. You can't ignore the cost consequences either. So we evaluated the cost consequences of the alternatives based on where things stand now and what they're projected to do um, because, like we're all experiencing across the economy, um, you know, we've had, you know, a lot of our prosperity has been based on the freely available fossil fuels mm. and, the, and the cost effectiveness of that. The alternatives, you know, in a large sense are more expensive and so you've, um, you need to work that through. Now, I think 
importantly, um, dramatic um, improvements have been made in engine efficiency and a, a reduction of emissions over the last decade that have actually seen engines you know, dramatically improve in performance. Um, and so you know, there's a lot of factors that actually come into play to try and build a model around how you actually make all of this work. And I think they're the things that are built into the Ricardo study. So just to, to simplify a little bit of that for our listeners, fundamentally with the current technology, say on a bigger boat, I say a 50-foot uh, motor cruiser, you cannot put enough batteries in it to give it its current range and power without sinking the boat because the weight fundamentally is just too great in that boat. Um, but um, it seems that, you know, it's not a one size fits all we're talking about here. You, this this study has revealed that different solutions are better for different styles of craft. Is is that the way we were looking at this? Yeah. Look, I think the if we look to what the outcomes are, and I think that's let's just sort of get down to it. There is no one size fits all because you do need to look at the specific use cases. However. If you look at the data set that we've used, which is the reflection of the vast majority of the industry, then for normal recreational use, the best way to decarbonise recreational marine industry is through the use of sustainable drop-in fuels. And the reason being is that there is, and one of the things that was uncovered is that in looking at each of the alternatives, the amount of embodied carbon within the manufacturing processes, particularly for batteries, is substantial. Mm. And because the operating hours are so low, you can't offset it. And so in some respects, there are numerous examples of in the study where the carbon footprint of the electrical alternative, recognising that it only had 20% of the performance, has a higher carbon footprint than the fossil fuel alternative. Now that sort of that was a bit of a that was a great surprise to yeah. us. And in fact, probably the most the craft that stood out to me as as the most surprising was actually um, the sailing yacht. Okay. And the reason being is that the average engine hours on a sailing yacht is only 28 hours a year. Of course, because they're using wind. Because you want to get the sails up, which is, you know, the best way to decarbonise a sailing yacht is to use your sails. Yeah. But as a consequence, um, you know, the ability, the, the, the embodied carbon within it. And so once again, sailing yachts have got a long life. Battery life is is limited, so you have to replace the batteries due to the term. And so as a consequence, the carbon footprint of, of of that alternative was significant compared to the alternatives. But the drop-in fuel alternative, you know, sees dramatic reductions. In fact, if we had a if we had a pathway for the recreational marine industry today that gave us the, the sustainable fuels that we need, then we'd meet the Paris Agreement. And the reason we would was that that the sustainable fuels, and I, I'll use the US figures because uh, you know I've got I've got them to hand in terms of they've, they they have great access to data in the US. And they've got volume there at boating. They've got volume. So. So, and look, in, in, in most respects, the, rec- uh, the US market or North American market is a, it reflects 50% of the global recreational marine industry in round figures. So there's about, I think they uh, there's 12.5 million boats in the US. Um, there's about 30 million worldwide. But there's 12.5 million existing boats in the US. Now they sell 250,000 new boats per year. So quick math says that it'd take 25 years to replace the existing fleet over time. And the existing fleet's got at least a mean life of about 20 years. So if you really want to decarbonise, 
you're going to have to come up with a solution that decarbonizes the existing fleet. The new fleet has a very little impact mm-hmm. um, on the on the the overall position. And so um, sustainable drop-in fuels, obviously, that you can put into the existing engines and utilize them um, are clearly a great way to to um, decarbonize existing fleet. But importantly, um, the conclusion of the of the report, which was to deal with new craft, came to the same conclusion. Uh, and so, in that sense, there's there's uh, a symmetry between between that, and that sort of creates this outcome that says sustainable fuels. Now, we did test, as an example, a higher PWC. Okay. And we we used 156 hours, and we assumed that the PWC would have a battery. Um, that enabled it to operate for you know under two hours. So in other words, a higher operator could let it out for an hour, it could run through, you had some contingency in the way that it was done, and then it had come back fast charge and maybe there was you had to have two craft or something like that. But in that particular case, that's a great example of where electrical um, solutions work really well. Yeah. Because then you can then it's clean, it it's, doesn't have much noise, it's all of those sorts of there's no emissions coming out of a a tailpipe and all those sorts of things for that particular circumstance. And so providing you can work with the functionality of it, we tested that as a use case. And because the engine hours were higher, then you could offset it, particularly if you're prepared to have a smaller battery because so much of the carbon's in the battery. So like I said, no one size fits all, but to decarbonise the recreational marine industry to to meet the Paris Agreement, the answer is sustainable drop-in fuels. And the the conclusion on the sailing yacht was? Um, same thing, sustainable drop-in fuel. Yeah, even even for a sailing yacht. Even for a sailing yacht because yeah. the the um, carbon footprint of the electrical alternative over an LCA analysis, cradle to grave, was greater than, you know, the alternatives. And so, you know, the sustainable fuels really step forward as the, as the solution to those issues. Yeah. So I guess really simplifying it down, thinking about all of those did we say 12 and a half million in the US boats 12 and a half million, yeah. sitting there? Um, yeah, to take all of their current engines out of them and replace them with an alternative, you're immediately taking away, you've, you've made a massive carbon imprint by creating those engines and keeping that engine going with a biofuel or a sustainable fuel is far, far better than creating a new engine, which it which uses a whole bunch of carbon in doing that, and then placing it in the boat and disposing of the old one as well. It's 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 a it's that's what you've got to think about, isn't it? Yeah, because but, boats go for so long. And uh, we like to call it the carbon balance sheet. So in other words, we've the carbon used in the manufacturing of the existing fleet has already been discharged into the atmosphere. Mm. But as a consequence, we have an asset the embodied carbon in the craft that's made is actually an asset. So the best way to reduce carbon is to use that as much as possible um, in terms of longevity and use it for as long as possible. So I guess to put a fine point on it, that if you if you had a, uh, an engine failure, as an example, within a, within a yacht that was 20 years old, what propulsion system should you replace it with? Well, you should replace it with an internal combustion engine that uses sustainable fuels. See, that's really fascinating. I know isn't it's, it? it's a surprise, but yeah. it's that is because the 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 carbon footprint of making that particular type of engine, um, unless there's what you know, 
if unless there's a moonshot, someone all of a sudden invents a battery that's got massive energy density and a life of 30 years, yeah. then, you know, everything changes and of you'd have course. to redo it, right? Yeah. But based on the technology that exists today yeah. and what Ricardo, as an expert consultant, projects the technology to be over the next 10-odd years, then, you know, the conclusion of the report is that sustainable fuels used through internal combustion engines for the vast majority of, of the fleet is the solution. Now, you know, this isn't to try about trying to stifle innovation in all sorts of different areas because, for instance, if you look at there may be use cases where electrical alternatives are the preference for other reasons. Yep. For instance, that it's about, it might be about noise or it might be operating in an environment where you're going, well, we don't want any form of emissions out of tailpipes uh, and things like that. But I think the important um, issue about this is that when you do an LCA analysis, it's all very well to say, well, during the operating phase, we're not making any emissions. But when you look at the supply chain, when you look at where the electricity is coming from, where you look at how the, the trucks and ships and various other things that move these materials around the world, um, where all the carbon emissions are in that regard, then you're going, well, let's just... LCA forces a degree of, of um, brutal honesty in what the carbon emissions are over an entire lifetime. Yeah. And I think that, that it's very easy to sort of look at one piece and go, well, this piece is really good, but it's in the recreational boating sense, it's how did we get there? And what are the consequences of, of actually manufacturing the product is probably the most important thing. So I think there's also the I think we should actually talk about as well, which is an issue that's now occurring in cars that have had electrical engines put in them, that um, there does come a point where the car is only worth X value, but the replacement batteries are a lot more than that. So that same thing is going to happen in boats at some point as well, especially yachts because yachts can go on for a very long time and, and their value is not necessarily as high as a motor yacht because of, because of the engines, funnily enough, because um, a lot of the expense in a motor yacht is the motors. So we've, that's an honesty conversation as well too, isn't it, that, that there is, Again, with current technology, there is that issue that cars are being, I've heard from New Zealanders that Toyota Leafs are being abandoned in New Zealand because they've got to a value that is lower than the replacement batteries, which is, I mean, that's a terrible situation for us to be in, isn't it? Well, well the carbon, the, the LCA carbon footprint of that would be extremely poor. And I think it's a, it's a really interesting one because electrical electric cars, for instance, providing that you... Um, are doing a lot of miles and that the source of the electricity that you're using, you know, if you're being able to charge it from home and you've got solar panels and all of those sorts of things and you're using it for a lot of miles, then the carbon, then there's a, you know, high probability that you will offset the carbon footprint of the manufacturing process and it'll be a great solution. But, but if you're not using the car very often and um, the electricity that's actually powering it is from coal-fired power stations. Well, yeah. <laughs> and um, then because don't forget, I think one of the interesting things is that the batteries in a car and, and batteries generally, the technology is that they have a certain life, um, which is a reflection of the number of charging cycles, but it's also um, it's not just that. It's also they have a certain life. Mm. And so even an underutilised car, the battery will deteriorate over time. And those times are a lot less than, than 
than uh, the normal expected life of, of cars. Now, look, I'm no expert in cars, so all of this is anecdotal. Well, yeah, but, uh, it's but just, I think um, that when you look at boats and we look at the science, because we do have the data now with the boats from this yes. study, that if you look at the longevity of boats, which are very long living, um, and then you look at the alternative technologies that are available today, then, then it's pretty clear, given that we have very low engine hours and we have um, you know, a lot of carbon in the manufacturing process. I think it does help us guide policymakers towards having a focus on two things. One is supply chain, really, really trying to understand the supply chain side and assist us in improving the supply chain. And the second thing is help us build a pathway to sustainable fuels. And I guess I'm, I may be a bit naive in saying this, but um, biofuels, presumably a lot more countries can produce that. I mean, obviously fossil fuels only come from certain areas and then they're transported to other countries to use them. So is is that the case? Can biofuels be produced by many more countries? Uh, they can. And I think there's a, there's a number of important parts to it. Um, there's actually a certain maturity in the manufacturing and development of these fuels in the U.S., Again, you can actually buy sustainable fuels at some marinas in the US today. How awesome is that? And and when I say sustainable fuels, there's 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 you know e-gasolines, you know, made from um, waste feedstocks or uh, cooking oils or various other things. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, there's also e-gasolines that are being developed, um, which are uh, you know orientated towards running you know, the equivalent of petrol type engines um, versus diesel. So so the technology to develop these fuels is there. We know how to do it. And in some respects, you know, at the, at the chemical level, you know, we take, if you think about what happens with oil refineries, um, we take crude oil and then break it down and make it into fuels that we can use. So we take it from a very dense and complex oil and we break it down into the parts that we use in, in biofuels. In a lot of respects, we're almost building them up from the raw components, you know, and from carbon and hydrogen, nitrogen, different things to build it up into the, the fuels we need. But it's a very similar um, process. But the source um, of the feedstock for fuels is probably our biggest challenge. Um, we don't want to have um, the circumstance where for example, we deforest, you know, we start deforesting rainforests yes. to grow palm oil um, <laughs> because that's, you know, you know, because obviously the forests themselves are doing a lot on decarbonisation for us and, and producing breathable oxygen. So, um, you know, deforestation to deliver this outcome is not the answer. Likewise, um, displacement of um, food production uh, could be problematic. You know, we don't want um, certain um, countries or that are producing certain types of foods to go, well, I'm not going to make that anymore because I want to build these, you know, I want to grow these particular crops that are good to make sustainable fuels. Um, but there are waste feedstocks that come from the agricultural process. In other words, the parts of the plants that are harvested that we don't eat okay. that we can use. Um, there are, as an example, the cooking oils that are used around the world that they get recycled and they're very easy to, to translate into these processes the way that they're worked through. So the supply chain for sustainable fuels um, is a great challenge, just like the supply chain for, for wind power or solar or hydro or nuclear and all, that, all of the different alternatives. They're all a challenge. And I think that this comes back to the core message. There is no one size fits all. 
but in the recreational marine industry, sustainable fuels is the answer. And I'll just add one more point. And that one more point is that as an example, when I said earlier that boats and planes have got a lot in common, well, fuels are the thing they've got in common as well. Yeah. So I, I read recently a study, um, a pathway document that was basically a joint venture between the CSIRO and Boeing, which was actually looking at the pathway to create sustainable airline fuels in Australia and how that could be actually produced. Now, um, I think in you know in round figures, I think the airline industry in Australia used something like 10 billion litres of, of fuel a year, something a around that. The boating industry then. I think we're around the <laughs> two to 300 million litres a year, right across okay. the whole of all of our boating and things like that. So, yeah. you know, airline fuels, that sort of kerosene smell that you smell with those sort of, you know, that's a particular type of hydrocarbon. And there's no reason why the same refinery couldn't be making sustainable um, gasoline or petrol for boats and sustainable um, diesel for use in certain types of transport and uh, and recreational boats. So there, there is absolutely the pathway. What we need is policymakers to actually um, acknowledge it, uh, to understand it, and then as a consequence to create policy frameworks around supporting it. Yeah. And I think that, you know, back to the COP28 that's going on at the moment, we need all these solutions. Mm. We need all these solutions. And just while we're on that subject, um, I guess we do need to make our audience aware of exactly whilst we're making these changes and we, we need to make the changes, we do as an industry have very little in, impact in terms of fuel carbonisation, don't we? Oh, yeah. You know? like, yeah it, the recreational marine industry's contribution to global greenhouse gas emissions on an annual basis is point. One percent. Yeah, we are one thousandth of it. So if we if we de- decarbonized one hundred percent tomorrow, it really wouldn't move the dial. You know, the big the big users are transport and, and energy production around sort of twenty to forty percent sort of sectors each type thing. So so that's where the majority of it is. But we have a we have a responsibility to do it as all industries do. We have a responsibility to do our part and to evaluate what needs to be done because and I guess. We need to also inform our policymakers and regulators as to how you actually do it for our industry so well, that they can work with us. Well, plus plus, I think as an industry, because of that big white boat image going fast, policymakers tend to look at us as a big bad um, consumer um, and, and that they therefore need to put policy in place to, to restrict us. Um, so... It, that's why we need to also, as an industry, step forward and and give them information to to show them what how what we actually do and what would actually make a difference. Yeah. So I, I think you've raised a really important point because I don't think there is that perception about what boating is we talked about before, but I don't see boating as discretional because I think that the reason being is that and we saw it during COVID is that when you know, when the future was uncertain, when, you know, everyone's lives and businesses and jobs were at risk, people gravitated towards the water, they gravitated towards boating, they gravitated towards outdoor activities. And I think this comes back to, I guess, this fundamental principle that we always talk about is that boating enriches people's lives, um, that being in, on or around water fundamentally changes human beings. It you know, it gives you a sense of well-being. It reduces your cortisol. It increases your serotonin. You know, that great book by 
Wallace J. Nichols' Blue Mind was probably the most accessible and contemporary explanation of it. But there's enormous science that that goes to to prove that that is the case. And as a consequence, um, it's of great value to society. Recreational boating matters. It has huge levels of participation around the world. Um, it transcends age. It transcends culture. Um, it's a you know it's extraordinarily popular. Um, activity. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of people around the world engage in recreational boating. So as a consequence, we need to fight for it. You know, we need to fight and defend our industry and its participation. We need to share this wonderful lifestyle with other people. And as a consequence, you know, the decarbonisation approach, we've taken this because we see it um, as a regulatory vulnerability Mm. of our industry where decisions are made based on inadequate information, well, there's no excuse now. There is no excuse. We have the answers, we have the science, we have the research, and we know what needs to be done. So um, we need to get that message out and we need to, to talk to as many um, people as possible, both uh, in industry but also the regulators and policymakers and the consumers to inform them. And I guess this is the first step. You know, we've done this massive study. It's, uh, it's been a huge undertaking across the globe but it sets the framework for us to move forward. And, and this is, this, like I said, it's just the beginning. There's an enormous amount of work to be done going forward in the next stages of this project. And I, when you're saying all that, I was thinking, I mean, the impact of a family of four going out on their boat for a week that's based in Sydney and they might take it up to Palm Beach for the week and they might hang out at Refuge Bay or some, somewhere like that for a week. Their impact on the environment in doing that, as opposed to flying somewhere overseas, is so little. So, so it's actually really important that we keep boating available for two people because we all know going on a boat for a week can feel like you've been somewhere else for two weeks because of that uh, time lapse that that seems to occur on boats, which is the whole blue mind concept. But um, it's it's actually really important that we keep boating available to as many people as possible because, like you say, it changes their lives. It makes them um, feel so good and we don't want to lose that. I mean, I think we've had enough impact on our mental well-being with COVID-19. We, we don't want to take away boating as well. You know, that would be tragic, wouldn't it? Oh, and, and look, it's... It's unfathomable. It just can't. It can't happen. It won't happen. <laughs> we will, you know, because we have to, you know, we have to ensure that that access to these these wonderful waterways um, are protected um, for for a whole range of different people. You know, it's you know from paddleboards to super yachts. You know, that's the from the sort of range of things we're doing. But I guess, you know, the other thing that I think is important as part of this is that it, this study isn't one dimensional. It, it identifies. A whole range of different because there's so much data in it. There's so many ways that you can look at it, and I guess the emerging um, use types, for instance, like syndicated ownership, like um, clubs, like Freedom Boat Club, and and um, those sorts of you know ways of going boating where multiple people can get access to a single vessel. Well, again, that's providing a pathway for people to get into recreational boating, but at the same time. Um, you're dividing the carbon footprint of the product itself by the number of people that are actually using it. So whether it's syndication or clubs or charter or those sorts of elements, 
you know, the, the greater utilisation of the, of the craft is also another way to decarbonise um, the industry because your, your per capita carbon footprint is reduced. And so um, all of these, you know, these processes form part of this pathway, um, as does um, elements outside the scope of the study, for instance, hull efficiencies, so material choices, foiling alternatives for fast craft. That's all very of these exciting things. technology, isn't it, foiling? It is, and I think that the, the efficiencies that can be gained from foiling, but but again, foiling is about going a bit faster, yep. right? So if you want to go faster, foiling technologies provide you a very efficient way to reduce the friction. You know, as I said before, that 10 times the amount of, you know, to push a boat through the water requires a lot of energy to, to get it up on the foils and get it, you know, once it's up on the foils, it's, it's very efficient through the water. So... There's a whole range of different things that form the bigger sustainability picture, um, but this decarbonisation study was about addressing, I guess, a very large um, issue that the world is facing. In other words, how do we arrest and reduce the amount of carbon going into the atmosphere um, to be able to minimise um, and reverse, uh, ideally, uh, climate change? Yeah, which is which is why import so important. It's done by somebody like Icomia that brings so many different people together because it's all industry people can, that can come up with all of those different solutions to assist the whole process, isn't it? Well, I, the benefit that we've got is that we have access to the to the best technologies from around the world, mm. um, that we have from the best experts from around the world that we, and this is what Icomia is about. It's about collaboration. It's about bringing the brightest minds in our industry together um, with the appropriate um, resources to actually deliver an outcome because this is, this is operating, you know, this study is of a scale that would be extremely difficult for any one uh, marine industry association to undertake in their own right. And given that the supply chains for our industry and most industries are truly global, that you actually need to access the data sets from all over the world to be able to produce a study of this type. So in that regard, you can really only do it as a global study for it to be genuinely meaningful to actually reduce carbon. And so I think that's one of the major benefits of what we've been able to achieve. So I guess to, to conclude on a couple of things, um, with the current boat owners, can we talk to them specifically about a couple of things they can do to make a difference almost immediately? Sure. So I think um, like all things, it's about, you know, if you want your boat to be efficient, so, you know, reducing your carbon footprint in a lot of sense is always about efficiency. So maintain your boat, maintain your engines, keep your hull clean. That's going to improve your fuel efficiency as a consequence going to reduce your your carbon footprint. It's also thinking about what you're doing. You know, in a lot of sense, you know, boating's about getting out and, and, and recreating with friends. So if you're just going out for a cruise to go somewhere to go for a swim, then you don't need to particularly go fast. Just take your time, you know, because you'll save some money, which is particularly good, but at Absolutely. the same time you reduce your carbon footprint. But, you know, there are other, other things where if you're doing tow sports, all those sorts of things, um, then again, it's just keeping your boat as efficient as possible um, to make it as effective as possible. The industry more broadly will be focusing on these pathways for sustainable fuels. As a consequence, we'll have to work very closely with the engine manufacturers 
to get them to be satisfied with the the types of fuels and to warrant the engines for those types of fuels and all those sorts of things. So there's a huge body of work that needs to be worked through in that regard, but we now know what to do. And I think that, so, you know, we'll be communicating to the consumers about um, what uh, the future looks like. We'll also be consuming, you know, we'll be communicating to the industry. So for marinas, for instance, you know, they, you know, they can take, I guess, some comfort in, in the reality that the existing infrastructure that they have for, for, the, for the storage and dispensing of liquid fuels will be suitable for the future. So, you know, that scenario is that if you've got to replace a fuel tank, well, it's worth replacing yeah. because it's not going to be redundant in five or ten years' time. And I think those sorts of key messages are part of the, the work that we are work, you know, that we're progressing with right now. And I guess I guess some marinas are in locations that they can't necessarily up their power supply dramatically uh, to allow all electrical boats to be there either. So they'd be a little bit more, um, a little less scared, if you like, right yeah. now too. So, so I think that it's interesting because I think th- there is definitely, um, you know, electric boats are part of the part of the picture. As I said before, there's no one size fits all, but but. Based on the current research, I can't envisage a scenario where all the boats in the marina in any sense will be electric. They'll be predominantly, um, their energy source will be sustainable fuels. Um, you know, there'll be more electric vehicles, so marinas will need to accommodate um, vehicle charging points and all those sorts of elements. But um, And that does impact on infrastructure design and, and you know, because if you go and build a marina today, you're building it for the 50 years, you're not building it for five years or 10 years, you're buying good quality infrastructure. That lasts for a long time, and so you need to think about what you need to accommodate in that infrastructure. Um, and so, I think that we've got a pretty clear picture as to what the future looks like now. And I know that we've we've mentioned a couple of times that super yachts haven't been included in this study, and that's because they're different usage profile um, to what recreational boats are. Um, obviously, they can use this information for their toys and their smaller boats and their tenders and all that sort of thing, can't they? Absolutely. Um, but um, in terms of the future of Icomia, is, is Icomia wanting to do more studies in, for example, taking in that space or how? what's the future there? So, so we, um, we're looking to work with, with the broader industry and, and there's been a lot of work done by the superyacht sector themselves in this particular area. And just to give you an example, um, you know, most superyachts have engine hours more than 1,000 hours a year. As okay. an example, things like that. So it's a different different usage profile, and and it depending on the scale of them as to whether they're closer to recreational boats or closer to ships, depending on how big they are. Of course, they can look at different technologies, and so we actually see that there is an opportunity to expand um, as another stage into vessels above twenty four meters, certainly as a study. Um, but that'll be driven by the super yacht industry itself in some respects as to as to what they want and how they want to move forward with that. So. Um, there certainly is a, is a process of engagement in that regard. Likewise, um, having only just launched um, this report in the last couple of weeks, it takes a little time for the broader industry to digest it. And I think that we'll find that the industry will come back and say, well, look, we'd like to explore this more. We want you to focus on this. And we'll build effectively a stage two project based on the feedback that we receive from industry as well as from policymakers. Um, and then build some collaborations about doing those projects. So that's exciting. So thank you so much for being here today and discussing this all with all of our audience and, and uh, 
giving them some real insight as to what the boating industry is doing to, to I guess, work out what the future holds. It's, um, it's you know, it's it's really exciting. It's an absolute pleasure. It's a, it's a big topic and it's a complex topic and I guess the challenge is how do you distill a 558-page technical report uh, down into um, into sort of a short summary. But um, Well, but- talking of which, you can actually get hold of the report, am I right? Yes. Yeah, uh, so how do people do that? So um, you can either get hold of the report by going to your, uh, if you're in industry, then you go to your MIA, your Marine Industry Association in your country, and they can uh, support you with that um, through their membership of ICOMIA. Um, there is an executive summary available to anyone. Um, we have a website called propellingourfuture.com, uh, and there's an executive summary of that report report on there. And that's got a lot of detail in it. It'll actually show you the, the comparative um, LCA carbon of the nine different craft types. So um, that's a really great place to start to actually get an understanding of it. That's great. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate you being here. It's been a good chat. I hope you guys have all enjoyed listening to this. It's been quite a long one because it's, we've had quite a lot to cover, but um, I think it's a really important subject that uh, really needs to be discussed and spoken about. I really appreciate Icomia putting that massive effort and um, suspect a fair amount of funding into that. Yeah. <laughs> so thanks so much, Darren, for being here. Um, any other points you'd like to make to the uh, to the listeners before we go? You know, I just really appreciate the opportunity to be able to uh, talk about it. I think that's, uh, you know, this is a topic that everyone needs to talk about, um, that we're here to try and um, get the information out there to, to stimulate conversations around this, to get people thinking um, so that we can work together for a better future for the industry as a whole, for the boating community as a whole and for the broader community. Thanks so much, Darren. And we'll see you on the water soon. And if you're not ready to sponsor us yet, but you'd like to support us in a small way, the best way you can do that is by reviewing the podcast. Or if you go to my website, theboatprincess.com and click on support the podcast, you'll be able to buy me a coffee and that will help this passion project be funded uh, just a while longer. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Boat Princess podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. And if you'd like to know more about what I do and where I am, then you can follow me on Instagram at the Boat Princess. You can also sign up to my newsletter on my website, which is theboatprincess.com. Take care of yourselves, everyone, and hopefully we'll see you on the water soon.